Welcome to Wheaton College's Center for Faith and Innovation podcast. My name is Alec Hill. Uh, I'll be your host today. I'm the former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. And our guest today uh, is Derek Sherman. And Derek's a professor of computer science at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, he's a co-author with two other guys uh, of a book entitled A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Uh, welcome, Derek. Glad you're with us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation, Alec. So I'm going to give you a softball first question. Uh, why'd you write the book? Ah, well, I, I, there's a long version of that and a shorter version. I can give you sort of an intermediate version. Uh, I worked for about a decade as an engineer and uh, um, and had uh, not attended a Christian college like the one I teach at, uh, but rather a large technical university and had never thought, uh, ever had the opportunity to learn or think carefully about how to connect my faith with my work as an engineer. And, uh, and, and I distinctly remember a time sitting in a cubicle farm uh, feeling like a Dilbert kind of wondering now what's the meaning of this and and how do I how does my faith inform my work uh, as an electrical engineer and uh, um, <clears throat> fast forward I began working uh, as a computer science professor at Redeemer University in Ontario Canada and uh, was really really um, grateful for the opportunity to develop as a Christian scholar there um, uh, there were some wonderful colleagues that I learned from um, and, uh, and as I grew as a Christian scholar, I began to think about how to connect my work to computer science. And that was the uh, beginning of my first book, The Shaping a Digital World, um, which basically is written to computer scientists to think about connecting the dots. Um, and then after a number of years, uh, I had a, um, there, was a, a uh, there was a little bit of a, a budget crisis at Redeemer and I, I, they closed the computer science department and I ended up uh, at Dort University in uh, Sioux Center, Iowa. And after a couple of weeks of coming in there, uh, I don't remember who exactly, but one of the administrators, I think, said to me, we, we need a book like shape, Shaping a Digital World, but for for engineers, right? We've got these big engineering programs. And I thought, yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, that would be helpful. But I'm, you know, I, after writing my first book, I, I knew how much work that was. And so I, I, uh, I nodded politely. Uh, but Dort was very, very... Um, um, you know, uh, set on the idea, and they said, "No, look, we we can we can give you some funding from our Andreas Center for Christian Scholarship, uh, and and you can bring people in or whatever you need to do. Let's get this project going." And uh, and that's when we reached out to some of the other authors, Ethan Brew, uh, the one co-author was an engineering professor at Dort, and uh, Steve Vanderlees. We called and and we flew him in. Uh, he was an engineering professor at Calvin for many years. He's now a an engineer in the real world, working uh, as an engineer, mm. and uh, and we began the conversation. That was about five years ago, and uh, we sketched out an outline for the book, and um, that's basically what uh, what what emerged about five years later. And we were grateful that that IVP was was uh, willing to uh, to work with us on that again. And we were all inspired by actually a much older book that was actually done at Calvin University many years ago uh, by the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship uh, called Responsible Technology. Uh, Responsible Technology is a dated book. It's from the you know, it's, uh, 1980s or so, uh, but it has a lot of really good solid thinking about faith and technology. But students find it difficult to read. It, uh, you know, it, it, it's dated in its references. Um, and so our goal was to make an update of that book, but 
but to make it much more friendly, to have stories and uh, pictures and images. And, uh, um, and so that was sort of our initial motivation. And that was the, the process by which all the pieces sort of fell together. And so, um, so I was grateful for those two co-authors as well, to have different voices speaking in, into the project. But that, that was sort of how it came together. So is the audience more students or practitioners? Well, I, uh, both. Uh, I think our original motivation, and I think at Dort University as well, the thinking was, you know, um, most uni- Christian universities have some kind of a capstone course in, uh, you know, faith and your discipline, where you think deeply after, uh, you know, after you've completed a comprehensive liberal arts sort of undergraduate education and you have to connect the dots uh in a multidisciplinary way but also through the eyes of faith with your discipline and so that was the original kind of idea having a book that could work for a capstone class to kind of set the frame for thinking christianly about engineering but um yes more widely practitioners who like me you know uh, like i did decades ago sitting in a cubicle farm wondering how do I connect the dots uh, between my faith and my, my work as an engineer, hoping that that will be a, uh, a helpful reference for, for those sort of folks as well? Yeah, when I, when I was dean of the business school at Seattle Pacific University, it was business through the eyes of faith, which mm-hmm. is the very term you just used. And uh, that was in, yeah, maybe 25 years ago. And that was kind of the beginning of that movement. Um, so let me ask, you start the book uh, with this, I think it's a really beautiful chapter, but you tell the story about the Wright brothers. Why do you, yeah. why do you choose them of all the historical figures you could have chosen? Why them? Yeah, I, I think that the whole history of flight really captures one's imagination uh, of, uh, of the development of technology, sort of the, you know, the, the delight in experimenting. You know, you've got these, these improbable inventors who are, you know, they own a bicycle shop and they're, they're kind of hackers, you know, in the early days of, uh, of technology. And, uh, and, and we see how technology, you know, oftentimes when we think about technology, we think it's, you know, uh, it's, it's a way to solve a practical problem and it's very rational and so on. But the, the purpose of chapter one is to say, no, technology is also more deeply rooted in our dreams. Um, uh, and uh, the, the name of the chapter is Dreams Take Flight. And we have uh, several examples, right, uh, from the, the space program, from uh, uh, the early um, uh, wireless uh, or telegraph uh, and uh, flight, and and how these stories were all, yes, solving practical problems of a sort, but they also were 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 problems that were based in in dreams of uh, of thinking about what's worthwhile, about what uh, what a, what uh, what kind of world we want to make. You know, it, it's much much bigger than just. Uh, um, uh, simply a practical exercise in making things more efficient. Um, and so our dreams still motivate our technology today. I think engineers are still dreamers uh, in a sense. And, uh, and of course, the question is, what kind of world do we want to build? You know, the, 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 the poem we quote is, you know, in dreams begins responsibility, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. what kind of world do we want to forge? And, uh, and so the chapter sort of sets the stage there uh, in, in terms of thinking about um, the origins of technology and, and what motivates it. Well, I appreciate it because sometimes art and uh, and science or engineering are put in opposition to each other. Yeah. And, and and you say that they're not. Yeah. We don't calculate new designs. We, we design things, right, in the way that an artist designs. Uh, the thing about engineering is that you have constraints, right? So you have to work with... Uh, 
uh, with the constraints of materials and of the natural world and um, uh, all kinds of other things. But, but within those constraints, there's a great degree of creativity uh, and, and also responsibility, right? Um, when, when, when you make engineering decisions, um, and that's where we get into later on in the book, like as we realize our dreams, there, there's a whole bunch of um, technical considerations, specifications, and those are the things that, excuse me, um, most engineering programs do very, very well. Uh, but um, there's also the normative considerations, right? The sort of the way things ought to be, uh, you know, dreaming about what the world should be. And, and, and those norms are sort of what we sort of tag later on as design norms that we ought to be thinking about as we're, as we're creating uh, new technologies. The, the book never mentions Steve Jobs, and of course he was not an engineer, yeah. but he leaned on his engineers really heavily he to did. band and mold. Do you have any comments on him and reflecting on his combination of art and science, even though he wasn't an engineer? Yeah, I actually have Walter Isaacson's book. I, I do. I do too. The, Mine's on right the shelf, me. right behind me, actually. Um, and, and he's not a nice man, but he was. No. A, but he was a creative genius who understood art as design as art, and yeah. I, I, but anyway, go, reflect on him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, he's an interesting character in, in the world of technology. Um, and and you're right. He wasn't a very pleasant. He was very he, very driven. He wasn't always the most friendly uh, to. His uh, his staff, and his family. Isaacson, I mean, yeah, and his yeah, family. family yes, yeah, and his yeah. family. Um, but he gave and, us beautiful products. Yeah, but he, he was able to dream uh, uh, about beautiful be- beautiful ways of solving uh, you know some of these early technical uh, sort of problems. And and uh, in chapter three, we begin to talk about these. Uh, chapter four, actually, the, the norms, the design norms, and one of the norms, the way that things ought to be for technology is this notion of uh, an aesthetic norm, right? That, that things are beautiful. And so you, you see in the life of Steve Jobs, I think there's, the, when they were talking about when they were making the early windowing systems, he didn't want square corners. He wanted little rounded, beveled kind of, you know, corners on the windows so that they would just look more pleasing. Uh, they talk about his obsession with the color of things and uh, the shape of things. And, and even the machines that made the machines, he was obsessed with what the machines in the factories looked like, you know, mm-hmm. and then his whole, um, you know, rather than having these sort of mono spaced sort of uh, typewriter type fonts, he had uh, he had the notion of, you know, his calligraphy background kind of gave him the notion of of, of thinking about what would beautiful fonts look like in, in a word processor. So Steve Jobs, I think, was finely attuned to the aesthetic uh, sort of norm, you know, how, thinking how to not only make a product uh, functional, but making it beautiful. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I think engineers today need to be thinking about these things more. You know, aesthetics isn't often emphasized too much in engineering programs, uh, but I think it's an important part, not only thinking about how something looks, but its form and its function, you know, uh, going well together and, 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 uh, and, and I think Apple does that very, very well. In fact, one of their products is in the Museum of Modern Art. You know, it's just an example of just beautiful, beautiful, mm-hmm. delightful sort of industrial design. One of, uh, one of the former philosophy professors here at Calvin, uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, has this piece where he talks about, you know, what is a good garden spade, you know, it, 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 a shovel. It's something that works well for digging, but it's also a delight to use, right? It's this this mending of form and function and aesthetics, and uh, 
And I think Steve Jobs was, was an excellent example of thinking about those wider sort of considerations. Um, uh, albeit he, he he could have been nicer to the people who were working yeah. with him in the process. Um, you use a couple of terms in the book, technicism and reductionism. And yeah. I, think they, I think they tie into this conversation. How so? Yeah. So um, why don't I handle reductionism first? Reductionism is just this notion um, that things in creation can be boiled down to one thing, right? So one of the pitfalls of a computer scientist is to see everything as data, right? Everything can be boiled down to just data or to the mathematical representations of a situation. Um, and, and, um, and, And that is a uh, an impoverished way of looking at uh, a holistic view of creation, right? Um, one of the things that uh, the biblical story kind of points out to us early on is that creation's diverse, uh, cre- creation is coherent, all things cohere in Christ, we're, we learn uh, in the scriptures. Um, and we need to resist all of these temptations to kind of boil things down to just the random interaction of particles or to just uh, mathematical notations. I think this reductionistic worldview leads us into all kinds of pitfalls. Um, if everything can be just reduced to mathematical or technical forms, then it uh, it misleads us into thinking that there's a technical solution for everything. Because if everything boils down uh, mathematically, uh, to, to, to uh, can be boiled down in that way, then everything is subject to technological control. Then too, and and I would suggest that you know not not everything that counts can be counted, you know? And so as an engineer, we need to think yes about the numerical, mathematical, physical kind of aspects of things. Uh, But we also need to be thinking about, well, the thing you mentioned, you brought up earlier, aesthetics. We need to be thinking about justice. We need to be, and these things are not things that can be captured in in mathematical equations, right? Um, And uh, a, a wonderful book about, you know, how this applies to data, which I've also got on my shelf somewhere is Weapons of Math Destruction. Right. Ooh, so that's a great that's a, a great title. Yeah. So <laughs> basically it's about data science and how people who think that, you know, mathematics can somehow capture the essence of things um, and, and can somehow uh, in a neutral way, you know, solve, you know, problems and make decisions like who gets a loan, who gets a job, who gets parole from prison, um, that somehow if we can express those things mathematically, right, that we will have... Uh, optimized, efficient, unbiased sort of decision making, but um, but we can't. And of course, the book is, as you can imagine from the title, um, basically uh, a, 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 an examination of how our technology is not neutral, and it can't be boiled down to these these sort of mathematical notions that we need to exercise more responsibility in those sorts of areas. And then, just very quickly, if if you have a reductionistic view of what it means to be human. Then you're 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 subject to 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 make other sorts of um, I, I think fall into other sorts of uh, complications when you think about, for instance, people who believe that we one day might be able to download our brain into a computer. That, that somehow um, everything that we are as a human can be represented in a physical or mathematical kind of way and captured, uh, rather than appreciating that creation is complex, that what it means to be human is complex, it has a physical and spiritual element. Um, and, uh, and and so a reductionistic view about what it means to be human is another pitfall, and that, that impacts how Christians approach AI and personhood and all these other sorts of things as well. So that's reductionism um, in, in a nutshell. Okay, thanks. Um, 
I'm, I'm a baseball fan, and uh, you know, the last 20 years with the advent of Moneyball, uh, the book and the movie, uh, there's a sense of putting everything into metrics and these advanced metrics and math formulas. And in one way, they've liberated the game because teams like Oakland have been able to use that and, and actually get ahead. Uh, Tampa Bay is another team. Sorry to go into baseball, digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, but, but there's a limit to it. That's the yeah. point. And, and you don't know the heart and the soul of a player. You yeah. don't know the, the emotional. Ma- and, and, you know, I think I won't name the player. Marin- Seattle Mariners had a great player, and, and, but he was kind of a jerk, and they traded him <laughs> away. And everywhere he goes, he, he has great years, he has great yeah. statistics, but he's not, his team never wins. So yeah, I think the, the television show Ted Lasso. Right, kind of shows like that the, the heart of a of a team that 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 goes beyond the sort of numerical ways of representing team performance and individual player player performance, but having I, I think that that show in a winsome way shows um, how, how the heart and and how the social connections between players and and their own lives sort of mm-hmm. impact how they operate as a team. And what we're yeah. seeing in Ukraine right now. With with just heart, they would lose against the Russians. But given the, the the weaponry, now they're able to do the quantitative and the qualitative. But all the Russians have is the quantitative and the math. They have none of the qualitative. Mm-hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see how all that plays out. And uh, we are complex human beings, is I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, and absolutely. and both both are necessary, quantitative and qualitative. But yeah. but um, sometimes we go to one extreme or the other. We only do art, or we only do science. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. So so you referred to this earlier. Um, but you're you're a good reform scholar, so you have your creation, fall, redemption, yeah. you know, sort of schema. You've already talked a bit about creation, and I don't know if you want to do some more on that. But uh, do you want to move to the fall, or do you want to yeah. you know, elaborate a bit more on creation? No, I, I um, and then I can answer your the, the second part of your question. What's technicism? Okay, uh, which, yeah, yeah, which I neglected to answer. Um, so yeah, cre- creation. So so first of all, the creation, fall, redemption sort of narrative is sort of the big sweep of the biblical story, right? Um, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre once said, you know, I can't really answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I answer the prior question, sort of what story am I a part? Mm. And, uh, and I think the biblical story is the story within which, you know, we live our lives as Christians. It sort of sets the backdrop for who we are and answers who we are and answers what's wrong with the world, what the remedy is, where we're going. And all of these things set a context for our work uh, in work and culture. And uh, so creation tells us uh, who we are as humans. It gives us a, a, a notion of human anthropology, of what it means to be human, what our, what our calling is. Uh, it gives us a sense of, uh, of, of the fact that God made a world that was good. We see work being something that comes before the fall, something that we're sort of created to do. But the fall, of course, is 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 basically what's wrong with the world right now, right? And it isn't just you know human hearts. It's 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 Romans eight talks about how you know all of creation is groaning. So our tools and our technologies and our uh, social relationships, our relationship with uh, with the creation, with ourselves, and of course with God, is, is marred by this by this this sin. And technicism is is a term uh, to basically talk about the idolatry of technology. In in its essence, technicism is the faith and trust in technology um, to solve all of humankind's problems and to progress towards sort of our own notion of utopia. Right? It's sort of a 
technicism is kind of like the biblical story, but without God, right? So the problem is we don't have enough technical know-how. The remedy is is through science and reason and through the Enlightenment well, sort right, of project. Right. We, uh, we, right. we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and progress is inevitable and eventually we'll solve, you know, all the problems of humanity. And like I uh, alluded to earlier, some people think we'll even solve the problem of death uh, with technology. You, you know, it's so, fascinating to me. They never read that, you know, World War One. There was so much optimism in the in the early part of the, that century. And then uh, so much of that went out the window. It's just ironic to me that that hasn't died in some circles, that sort of yeah. false hope in, yeah. in, in our own abilities to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, so the biblical story then, so creation, fall, then, then there's redemption. And of course, as Christians, we see the, the, the solution to the problem is not, a, is not one that would come about through technology or any other human or creational sort of efforts. It comes through Jesus Christ, right? And I mean, that was the issue with the Tower of Babel. People were trying to build their own bridge between heaven and earth uh, and uh, to make a name for themselves, it says. Um, but of course, as Christians, we acknowledge that it's Jesus Christ who uh, who has come to redeem all things, uh, to restore that relationship between us and God, but also to inaugurate his kingdom, a kingdom that is a, yeah, a cosmic vision of how things ought to be, restoring all things. So this is the sort of big comprehensive vision that you often hear about in reform circles, right? This this every square inch sort of notion. So, so that includes exactly. technology, yeah. that includes yeah. all of life. Uh, and, uh, so, so how do engineers play into this redemption motif? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, first of all, we see technology and all aspects of technology as being a, a legitimate area of creation for service to God and neighbor. It's a way that we can express our love for our neighbor by creating useful products and services. Uh, I think it's a way to glorify God. I think when you study technology, you just see how wonderful his creation is, you know, that these 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 laws and these materials in creation are not arbitrary, but um, God has put this latent potential into creation. And uh, ready and early in, in the creation story, we're given this, this cultural mandate, this call to sort of develop and unfold things. And so we do that, uh, you know, responsibly. Um, I think uh, uh, we can also use technology as a witness, right? So we, we, we use it in ways that are obedient to God, but also as a ways that are witness to others or to use technology itself um, to help uh, spread um, God's word and to um, show love for our neighbor in, in remote places and so on. Um, but I think the one pitfall, um, uh, we mentioned earlier, one pitfall is people sort of see technology as a way to utopia. Another pitfall is that also people see technology as perhaps something that will destroy us. Right. And so I think when we think about redemption, we have to realize that technology is neither the savior nor the villain uh, when it comes to either of these sort of approaches and to realize that it's Christ that will usher in his kingdom. It won't be us by our own wits or by our own technology. We're, we're simply called to sort of faithfully um, uh you know, make some imperfect models of the perfect world to come. That's uh, how Lewis Meads puts it. You know, I, I like that. You know, to sort of be faith, be a faithful presence, to be faithfully doing the things he's called us to do. But ultimately, it'll be God who ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, did, did I read in the book that you wrote that uh, technology is not morally neutral? 
Yes. So, so what I heard you just saying, it sort of implied that technology could swing either toward pessimism or optimism, which sounds yeah. like it's morally neutral. But then, so unpack that. Yeah, so, so the, the non-neutrality of technology is so important that we spend a whole chapter on it. So chapter three, I believe, in the book basically goes through different myths of neutrality of technology. And this is always a tough nut to crack with my students when I initially begin teaching my capstone courses. There's always students who kind of squint at me and they're skeptical. And I was too, you know, as an engineer coming out of engineering school uh, without the benefit of, um, you know, a more holistic liberal arts education. I was kind of like, yeah, of course, like, you know, tools are tools. It's, uh, you know, it's what you do with them that counts. It's like fire. If fire yeah, is yeah. neutral. Yeah, yeah. It's neutral, go. right? Um, and, and it wasn't until later on that I sort of developed this more uh, nuanced and, and uh, complex sort of uh, perspective of technology that I realized that that's a very naive way to think. And it's important to recognize that technology is not neutral, because if it is, then actually, you know, engineers have no responsibility because we're just making tools. It's up to the users, right, then to use the tools responsibly. It sounds so, like social platforms, right? That's the line yeah, they use. Yeah, we're just right. here. We don't, yeah, we don't, just, you know, we'll, you know, we yeah. just pass it through. That's right, you know. And so, um, and so I, the people that I think have been most helpful in kind of understanding that, at least for me, are actually the, you know, some of the media ecologists of like 40, 50 years ago, people like Marshall McLuhan mm. and uh, Jacques Alal and. Uh, and Neil Postman is very good, very readable. Well, those are class, right? class, classic yeah. names. Yeah, 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 and I think they apply in spades nowadays. Like, I think if you go and read those old books, and, and oftentimes they're bemoaning television and older technologies, but but all the arguments they make uh, apply equally, perhaps more so to you know social networks and to uh, other forms of more modern technology. And basically, their argument is is that within every single technological artifact there is a bias that sort of nudges a user to use it in a particular way um you know neil postman makes this argument that technology is not just um additive it's ecological right so you can imagine you know if you have a glass of water and you put a, a drop of red dye in the water you don't have water plus a drop of red dye you have a whole new substance right and so when you introduce a new technology into an environment it's like unleashing a new species into a forest right it has all these complex interactions and um and and so we see how the smartphone isn't just you know the world uh, since the smartphone isn't just you know the world plus the smartphone, it's a whole new world. It changes politics. It changes the way we communicate. It changes mental health of young people. Mental right? health. Yeah, 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 yeah. Social networking. Networking. The same. Uh, the the um, the show. The session. The the documentary. The social, social dilemma. dilemma. On it's, it's a fat. I've watched it twice. Yeah. It's really. And it shows you. It's not neutral. Well, and these designers in, yeah. in the Bay Area won't yeah. let their kids use the products they design. Yeah. That's the yeah. kicker. Yeah, that, that, that's been often referred to as the reverse digital divide, where, you know, that they actually uber wealthy are the ones who are saying, you know, we don't want our kids to be immersed in tech and uh, and, and, and are, are making those choices. I think in part because they, they kind of realize the, the, these tools are, are, are kind of uh, preloaded with, uh, with certain habits and rituals and um, I think it's well, in, in that in that video, yeah. by the way, remember those yeah. three guys who are playing with the screens and they're watching this 15 year old boy and they're mm -hmm. controlling his life with with a, with attraction towards a girl and a product. And it's just so horribly manipulative. Yeah. And it's it's overdone a little bit, but yes. it's very, very gripping scene. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, there, there are some parts of that uh, that documentary that I, I would probably quibble with, but I yeah. think on the whole, it makes the point, you know, that uh, that that, that technology is not neutral. These, these algorithms are not neutral. Like, uh, I, I think sometimes computer scientists can can be tempted to think, well, you know, algorithms are mathematical, right? I can I can express them using predicate calculus, you know, they're, they're, it's math, so it's got to be neutral. But behind every one of these algorithms. You know, our opinions about, you know, what, what should be done. There are dreams going back to our first chapter about what, you know, what, what's worthwhile to do, about what we want to accomplish, about uh, what's worthwhile to measure and uh, what sort of um, things, what, what different ways do we want to nudge people? Yeah. Derek, is it simplistic to say that technology has fallen like every other uh, institution and part of life? Yeah, I, I think, you know, going back to that Romans 8 verse, you know, the whole creation is groaning, you know, so, so technology also exhibits those, those effects of sin, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that that's, that's not, I think that, that that's a general statement that I think is, is a helpful way to understand what the problem is. So the solution then is not better technology or it's better um, heart, better heart. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's ultimately the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, um, which is something we're not going to be able to accomplish on our own. So the book lays out uh, technological optimists and technological pessimists. Yeah. Are you a technological pessimist? <laughs> I think most engineers are attracted to the discipline because they've got a little bit of optimist in them, right? It's it's uh, And I used to delight in technology. Uh, I was a ham radio operator as a teenager. I used to build electronic circuits sometimes for mischievous ends, but, uh, I, you know, and I, I got into the early personal computers. I, I keep this on my desk. It's the keyboard of my very first computer, a Timex Sinclair ZX81. This is just the keyboard. But uh, You, you, you might be interested. I went to high school with Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Oh, no way. In Seattle there. So ah. there's 60 guys in my class, and I was ah. looking at my 20-year photo, and there's Paul Allen. You know, of course, wow. he, died, he died a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, I grew up in the revolution without even yeah. knowing I was in the revolution. Yeah, and those guys were at it. There apparently was a computer in it, their high school. So, so Bl Bl Bliss yeah. Hall had yeah. four hall, four floors, and the bottom floor was a whole mainframe mm -hmm. that was purchased by the mothers as they ran rummage sales. So they bought uh -huh. this mainframe, and at 17 and 16, they were running the city lights for Shoreline, Washington. Anyway, it's an, and if I had had any inclination, I could have gotten on. The, I could have gotten <laughs> on the bus, but I, I had no inclination. So. Yeah, no. So I mean, that captured my imagination too, as as a kid. These early, I mean, these early personal computers were magical. I had no idea where they would take us, but I, I knew there was something special here, and uh, and it, that hobby became my vocation essentially uh, over time. That's just yeah. so. So back to the optimist or pessimist. Are yeah. you? Are, are you? You're not neutral. I mean, which no. way? Which way do you tip? So so yeah, I I, I so I, I tend to be optimist, and I think I. I you know, especially when I was in engineering school, I I think I drank some of the Kool Aid uh, that you know uh, about how technology could provide a fix for most things. I, I when I look back at my undergraduate education in a secular school, there, there there no one ever said this is our worldview, but there was a way of thinking about the world and about technology that was implicit. You know, sort of below the and I I had no way of detecting it at the time. I didn't have the tools. I I actually didn't care to think about those things too much at that age. I was more enamored by the technology itself. But, uh, but you know, the, the idea there was that, you know, the, the world is mechanical in nature and it's, 
it's amenable to technological solutions. It's a technological worldview. Um, and, uh, and so I thought that, you know, with, with the technical tools I had learned that, that, yeah, I, I could, I could, you know, I could solve a lot of the problems myself with my wits and my and, and with the skills that I had been given. And I think it wasn't until later on when I began to wrestle with the, you know, how the biblical story informs my work with technology that I began to temper that a little bit. You know, I, I think we can be thankful for technology. It's a wonderful gift. Yeah. I think it's not too far to say that it helps push back some of the effects of the fall i mean medicine things like this right it's a gift from god but uh but it's not going to be the silver bullet for what ultimately ails us and uh and so going back to this statement right we have to be careful not to see technology as the savior and then on the on the flip side there's those right who who see it as sort of the the end of us the the frankenstein narrative i talk about in the book right it's prometheus sort of the, yeah the, the prometheus, prometheus myth right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah sort of the terminator right you know the yeah. all these sort of movies that sort of depict you know technology you know turning on its creator and destroying them you know there's this postmodern despair with technology that blade, blade runner blade runner blade runner yeah it's it's this depressing it's a, futuristic world yeah. That's that's actually just kind of dark. I mean, uh, it, it's just it's just not a happy place. Because uh, so I, I I think, and that's not to say that you know there might be consequences of poor technology decisions in the future. That our world could right. uh, could could bear consequences of poor technology decisions. But I think looking at technology for either of those extremes as the villain or as the savior is is. Uh, is, is something we have to avoid. And then to think about how then shall I live? How then shall I engineer? What does it mean to be a responsible engineer to use these God-given gifts and creational possibilities in ways that show love to my neighbor and care for the earth and bring honor and glory to God? And uh, that's the that, that's sort of the, the big, um, I think, uh, context for, for our work as Christian engineers. Well, I'm, I'm a walking case study of technology. Uh, seven years, six years ago, I had a bone marrow transplant. Huh. So so 40 years, 30 years ago, I'd be dead. I wouldn't be here mm. doing this interview. But through the, uh, the miracle of science, uh, here I am. And so um, I have a love-hate relationship with technology as well because I'd be dead um, and yeah. uh, literally dead. And then two, uh, last year I had two new hips replaced. Uh, you refer to limb replacements or hip replacements or knee replacements in your book. And I, yeah. I, I mark that one up. So technology has been a real friend of mine. And yet, and yet I see as a professor, I see the, some of the, the destruction in some of my students that technology has opened doors into their self-doubts and their depression and their fragility yeah. uh, that Jonathan Haidt and other authors talk about. Hey, well, let me let me go to Bob Moses. Um, I, I was fascinated. Uh, Bob Moses was a bureaucrat in New York City for decades yeah. who, who basically re-engineered the whole city. And I have his book, the, I read his book, The Power Broker, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So when I saw that, but you said, here's the quote, Bob Moses built racism into his bridges, end quote. That's a very strong statement. Why'd you make it? Yeah, so um, so so to be clear, that that chapter was written by my co-author Steve Vanderleest, and, and okay, so we, could... <laughs> we wrestled with that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, um, because it is a strong statement, um, and uh, what we settled on was to you know cite Robert Moses's book, where he lays out over the course of hundreds of pages, you know, that this idea uh, that that he uh, and for those who who aren't familiar with the story, 
Robert Moses was the great architect of New York City um, and built many of the, the parks and uh, infrastructure. The roads and, and the and roads. And, yeah. Yeah, and, parks. And, yeah, yeah. And there was these bridges over top of uh, freeways uh, that would lead to the beaches. And he built these, he allegedly built these bridges in such a way uh, that buses could not pass underneath these bridges. And, and the implication was that that would prevent people uh, who relied on public transportation, uh, which is sometimes used as a proxy for race and for other disadvantaged groups from preventing them from being able to go to the beaches where people with their own automobiles could could, could easily do so. And so Robert Moses um, makes this insinuation. And in fact, that there's a, there's a wonderful essay called uh, Do Artifacts Have Politics? Uh, that actually talks about this. Uh, Do Artifacts Have Politics? The, the name of the author is A Winner by Langdon Winner. Um, and he, he goes and explores this in, in, in a lot of detail as well. Um, and uh, there have been people that have pushed back. So this is why as authors, co-authors, we had a little bit of a uh, a back and forth about you know that strong statement. There was someone who wrote an article in response to Langdon Winter that wrote an article called um, "Do Politics Have Artifacts?" Right. So you kind of flipped it around and kind of say people attributing certain things to objects after the fact. So I, I think you know if you read the Power Broker, um, the, the the author who wrote that book did a lot of homework over over a long period of time and 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 made the claim. Uh, that there was some racism involved in those decisions. Um, uh, I, what, I, uh, what's hard yeah. there is that Moses, I, as I recall, was the son of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. So he had a he had this yeah. the Old Testament. So that makes it even more complicated. Yes, yeah. So so to be honest with you, that that sentence you just highlighted now was was one that we discussed <laughs> and uh, went back and forth on a little bit and. Uh, um, uh, probably, if I were to speak personally for myself, I probably would have, um, I, I probably would have toned down that a little bit because it's hard to attribute motivations to people. Um, but I think, regardless of you know how, where you might stand on your opinion about where his inner motivations came from, the bridges weren't neutral because they actually did prevent people from going to the beach, and so at the very least. You know, if, if you want to have a more charitable view, uh, he didn't think about people who rely on public transportation who might want to go to the beach. He, he, uh, he ignored. Uh, so so those, at, best, those... at best, it's omission. At worst, it's yes. omission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, you, the other illustration you guys use is with photographic, with film, there's the way that the film is tinted yeah. favors yeah. the Caucasian. Uh, explain that. Yeah, so the original photochemistry for uh, for film was was developed and optimized for white-skinned folks, uh, and uh, was not developed in a way that would render uh, darker skins um, um, as well. And so, so, so the the technology itself already was biased for uh, certain types of skin color. Um, there's other examples and other technologies too uh, that. The telephone, right, was the frequencies that the normal telephone responds to, which is, I think, somewhere between 300 hertz and 3 kilohertz or something. But it was optimized for male voices, not for women's voices or for higher voices. So, I mean, there's all these examples about how the people who develop technologies sometimes don't think about um, other, other people groups or other gender 
of the other gender or, right. or, or whatnot when, when they're making these design decisions. Another example we give in the book is that women are more likely to have fatal accidents in that automobiles. Was my ne- so, so 17% yeah. women, quote, women are 17% more likely to be killed yeah. in car crashes than men. Explain that. That's, well, not, that's not intuitive to me. Yeah, I mean, when you're designing cars and designing crumple zones and, and seatbelt mechanisms and, you know, the dash and everything else, um, um, if all you're using is crash test dummies that approximate the weight and size of an average male, uh, then then you're going to design, make design decisions based on, on, on that data point, right? Um, and so... How, how does this happen? How can you, how can you not... Yeah. I mean... What, explain to me the psychology of engineers who are testing dummies and they don't think about women as being 50, 51% of the passengers yes. or drivers. No, I, I, and, and I think too, you know, when, when, um, uh, when I was working as an engineer, you, you were trying to bring a product to market quickly. Uh, you, you were using your own experience to inform what that product looks like and what features it ought to have. Uh, I don't remember ever sitting down with focus groups or social scientists or anything like that. So I, I, I think that, you know, engineers alone um, are actually, and, and in fact, if you look at the, the population of engineers, it's mostly male, right? Well, there, yeah, there are, that's right. You know, you go to, even in Christian colleges, uh, you look at engineering programs and, and maybe there's only 20% female enrollment. Well, that's why they're added the to thing. get more male students in, right? Yeah. I mean, in part. Yeah. It's, it's like, and, having and, a foot, like having a football team. Yeah. And and and, uh, and people of color and people with other perspectives and so on. I, so I think engineers need the help not only of a more diverse sort of set of people around the table, but also other disciplines. You know, we, we need the business folks because, of course, our business is going to fail if uh, – if, if we don't really think about the economic side of things, we, we need social scientists to think about some of these other questions about groups that are represented and so on. We need psychologists. We need artists. We need the Steve Jobses of the world, uh, per, perhaps um, less, uh, less abrasive uh, Steve Jobses, but, you know, people who can think about those aesthetic things. Um, we need maybe even theologians and philosophers. I, I think they bring insights about ethics and about um you know, ultimate ends and goods that, that can all inform technologies. And so, and, and that's what we see, you know, going back to the social dilemma that that film, you see a technology that's designed to optimize viewer, to, to, to optimize user engagement and to sort of just keep eyeballs on screens and not look at any other considerations, you know, at the expense of everything else. And, uh, and so, yeah. Um, Part of it comes from just the demographics of engineers themselves and then just the way that products have traditionally been made to technical specifications and not thinking about the norms. So getting back to those design norms uh, mm-hmm. that I, I hinted at earlier. You know, uh, here in Seattle, uh, the Boeing Max plane crashes have been yeah. huge news. And in that story, uh, Boeing was an engineering firm that, that had managers as leaders, but then it moved to Chicago and now it's moving to D.C., the headquarters at least, and the division between so the engineers are the heroes in the story, and the business people are the villains. If I can yeah. be very simplistic about it, so that's a story that kind of flips it, where the the business people should listen to the engineers. Yeah, yeah. There's another Netflix uh, documentary about the about the Boeing uh, incident. Um, yeah, I forget the name of the documentary, but yeah, it, it sort of looks at the the corporate culture, uh, and and you know alleges that the a shift in the emphasis of the culture. A corporate culture shifting from an engineering-driven kind of culture to a more bottom-line business-driven culture um, 
was one of the contributing factors to, to total yeah, it was, this. Well, it was when they merged, they bought McDonnell Douglas, and yes. the story goes on from there. But yeah, I watched the same documentary, and um, you know, again, here in Seattle, it's big news, and it's, it's horrible having been in Ethiopia yeah. and Malaysia and seeing those crashes. Um, it's very painful. Um, you have a quote from Winston Churchill. I always love Winston Churchill quotes. Uh, he wrote, we shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah, so this gets back to the notion that technology is not neutral. You know, um, you know, Marshall McLuhan said it a little more cryptically, right? You know, the medium is the message. You know, the the thing itself has a has a message inside of it. TV isn't just about TV shows, but the medium of TV changes us. And you know, when we create television, when we create automobiles, we aren't just creating you know, means of communicating news and information or or building an artifact that can travel from point A to point B. Um, It's reshaping our culture. It's ecological, you know, like the example I gave earlier. And those ecological changes change us, right? So when I want to walk to school, I I live nearby Calvin's campus. Um, I got to navigate some very busy roads that are not pedestrian friendly. Um, You know, a lot of uh, people in in uh, suburban neighborhoods are not don't really know their neighbors because where they work and where they shop and where they live are separated by vast distances their the architecture of homes um has changed in the last hundred years right the, the defining feature of a, of a home a hundred years ago was a big front porch right where you could talk to the people who walk by uh, and nowadays it's you know a, a garage or two or three garages yes. and people come home and the automatic garage door opener opens and then closes and if they are going to sit out it's going to be in a private patio in the backyard That's right, right? That's so right. I, so in, in that way the automobile has you know allowed us to move quickly from point a to point b uh most most days but uh, uh, it also has changed our neighborhoods it's changed uh community it's changed how we know our neighbors um, and so it shapes us. It shapes us as people, as communities. Uh, and that's just one example. The smartphone and social media are other examples where, where you can see quite quickly how, how the technology is shaping us um, in profound ways. Derek, you spent a whole chapter in the book on the electric car. Um, yeah, that, that both, was both my past, other Past yeah, and offer. future. Yes. Why, why have a whole chapter dedicated to the electric car? Yeah, so that to, to be clear, that was Ethan Brew, who's our who's our local technology historian, uh, and one of my co-authors, Ethan Brew, uh, who teaches has taught courses on on the history of technology, and we are very eager to have him include that that chapter because technology doesn't just uh, fall out of nowhere, right? There is sort of a, a historical context. There is um, choices that are made in the past and pressures and, and dreams that inform the directions of technologies that um, uh, that we need to understand in order to understand the shape of things uh, as we see them today. So, so chapter uh, that chapter on on the history uh, of the e, of the electric vehicle in particular. Right, right now when we think about Tesla and about EVs and all the manufacturers scrambling you know, to create uh, electric vehicles. What we forget is that's actually how things started. The original automobiles, um, some of the early automobiles were in fact electric vehicles, but that technology was abandoned. And it wasn't just because, you know, batteries were limited in range and all those sorts. I mean, we could have solved all these problems over time had had we sort of stuck in a certain direction with these things. But it had to do with, again, 
the dreams of automotive freedom, being able to go out into the countryside and escape the city. Uh, and, uh, and, and because inside the city, there actually, you know, when the automobile came along, there was lots of electricity uh, that was being generated locally that could be used. We didn't have gas stations in every corner like we do today. Electricity was much more uh, mm-hmm. viable uh, for distributing to homes and businesses. Um, but that chapter actually just sketches some of the, uh, some of the social, historical, psychological kind of um, forces that shaped the technological decision. You know, we have, we have this notion that technology sort of has a logic of its own and uh, the most efficient, most practical, most reasonable choices get made along the way. But there's, there's all kinds of other factors that shape the direction and the, uh, the, the shape of our technologies. And, and the, the EV is a great sort of working case example. Yeah, I just found it fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. So you, I was also a bit surprised you went after the Amish a little bit. Um, nobody, <laughs> nobody goes after the Amish. Come on, they're kind of yeah. saints, right? So, yeah. so why did you have this uh, a mild? It's not the Bob Moses critique. It's a milder right. critique of the Amish. Yeah, again, I think that was uh, that was another one of my co-authors who. who oh, I love the way that. you deflect this, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, I had a, a co-author my next book, so I could do this in the interview. <laughs> this is a great technique. Well, it's it's uh, you know, I I, I uh, I'm trying to remember the reference that you're you're talking about, but I I, I think that well, it's because well, let me let me frame it for you. So it's kind of like the the Amish say that they're sort of anti-technology, and yet they're horse and buggies are full mm-hmm. of technology, the wheels of technology. Uh, so so it's not an, it's not as an advanced form of technology, but they're using right. technology all the time. Yes. Okay. Yes. No. And that's, our, I think that, that that's a very helpful uh, point to make that, that actually shows us that, you know, when we talk about technology, we're not just talking about, you know, advanced recent technology or things that were made since we were born. But uh, uh, the one example I think in the, in the first chapter, we talk about how someone, you know, prays in their church that the technology will work well. And what they mean is, you know, the projector and the sound system and the streaming video and so on. But, you know, uh, zippers are, uh, are technologies, right? You know, uh, steps and HVAC systems are technology and the paper in our, in our pews, uh, right? And uh, stained glass windows. I mean, all these things our technologies as well. And so to kind of think about technology more broadly, mm-hmm. you know, some of these technologies have faded into the, uh, the background a little bit there. Neil Postman talks about mythic technologies, technologies that we assume were just always there and part of the natural environment, right? You know, for us in the West, running water and sewage are just, they're just part of the natural environment, right? That's always there. Um, and uh, we take them for granted. They sort of, you know, just form the background of everything. Um, but yeah, to think more, more widely. And I think the thing about the Amish is that they're, they don't reject technology per se, but they make very, very careful decisions based on the sort of social, um, uh, impacts and, uh, you know, uh, religious impacts that certain introductions of certain technologies might have on them or their community or their, their faith life. And I think maybe they understand maybe better than us in some ways, that technology is not neutral. <laughs> when, when, when we introduce new technologies into, into our lives, our farms, our, uh, our, our worship services, uh, that yes, you know, we shape our tools, but then our tools will shape us. And the question is, is, is this a way we, we want to be shaped? And, uh, or do we want to make certain, certain choices? Do you um, remember, remember the Harrison Ford film Witness? 
and he's an yes. English cop in Philadelphia <laughs> yeah. who hides out in this Amish. And there's a yeah, scene they, where he's yeah. he has he's repairing his car, uh, and and and, he, and there's a there's a song that comes on. It's kind of a romantic '50s song, and he starts dancing with the Amish woman, and you can see the technology of the uh, shaping the relationship. I'd never thought of it that way. Changing it. Maybe. Changing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Just back back to Churchill's choice uh, phrase uh, comment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that it's a it's a scene where technology intrudes, it enters in to the Amish yeah. world and it changes her. Yeah. And and so I think the question as Christians is, you know, uh, when we're as users, right, we have to make the decision if I adopt this particular technology in my life, um, is it gonna make me more into the kind of person that God wants me to be? And then, of course, for for Christian engineers, the question is, um, as I design this technology, am I designing it in a way that's going to be uh, to help my my end users to flourish? Mm-hmm. Now, now, oftentimes this this opens up another can of worms, because oftentimes engineers are constrained by what the corporation they're working for tells them needs to be made. And so the, their decision making is constrained. Right. But you always have some choices about how you're going to, you know, choices about environment, about product um, uh, part uh, sourcing about, you know, features. Uh, engineers can speak into all of these things. Um, so, Derek, just two questions. We're almost done here. Uh, the last, the, the sec- first one is, the, the, the end of the book, it's really kind of unique. It, it concludes with a series of emails between a professor and a former student. Yeah. Okay, first of all, wh- what was the purpose of that chapter, and why did you include it at the end? Yeah, I, I think the chapter's intention was to kind of say, well, you know, we've given these these general principles and these um, these guidelines for for developing responsible technology, um, but the situations you're going to encounter and the types of uh, you know dilemmas that you're going to going to see and the sort of practical things that come up in the rough and tumble of everyday life is going to be more complicated than just a um, than a set of basic principles right and so the 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 chapter sort of deals with certain practical situations that come up as this young engineer is just beginning uh, his work uh, in, in, in industry and he's writing back to his Christian college engineering professor to ask for advice. And um, and if I'm pushed on this, that, that was one of the chapters I, I did. I it, it's kind of like a set of letters between my younger self, who was sitting in the cubicle uh, farm, wondering, uh-huh, wondering. Uh-huh. I mean, if you were to psychoanalyze me, you'd you'd probably find elements of. Were, were these you know, re, were these real emails, yeah. or were they made up? No, they're made up. They're, they're so, made up. So oh, okay. They're I, all, I, they're I, all imaginary. I, I bought it hook, line, and singer. I oh, thought they did. were real. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, to, to, to kind of but but, but I like the older, I like the Cat Stevens, the older and the younger kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And That's so cool. the older guy is kind of, you know, me now as a, you know, um, uh, upper middle-aged uh, Christian college university professor, um, you know, and, and then thinking about myself sitting all, sitting in that cubicle farm many years ago, you know, trying to think about how to connect the dots and thinking about, you know, some of the challenges I encountered or, or you know, having interacted with our alumni, you know, students come back and they, they talk about, you know, some of the, the things in the real world that uh, your education doesn't necessarily, you know, perfectly prepare you for where you have to, um, where you have to become the cert- a certain kind of person who knows how to wisely respond to these, these different situations in ways that are, are faithful to, to, 
to God's norms for his for his world. But yeah, so it, it is a little bit reminiscent of of myself. But I, I think it's also an example of uh, what a mentoring relationship might look like. I think mm-hmm. we all need mentors, you know, we people do. who can speak into our lives, who who actually embody that worldview, um, who who kind of you know make it real, and uh, who can also pray for us. And 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 part of the things that the the sort of sage older professor says to this young engineer is that you know you, you need to be part of a faith community too. You need to see that your vocation is not just your work you know, paid work, but it's also, you know, you're calling to be part of your neighborhood and your church and your family and, and your friends and, uh, uh, and to, and, and to think about vocation in, in the bigger sense of the word. Um, so it's, uh, it gives them a bit of a blessing at the end, you know? Um, and, uh, so I, I think I, I'm glad you thought they were real because that's, uh, <laughs> that was the intent. It was meant to capture yeah. a slice of life between, between these two folks. And, and like I said, it was certainly inspired by uh, my own experiences. Um, um, so I, I, I hope that it's a helpful encouragement to young engineers who read it. That's great. Well, final question. Anything else you want to add? Anything that I, question I haven't asked that you'd like to address? Any topic? Anything else? Yeah, the only thing I can say is that, you know, um, there is so many other wonderful books about uh, technology through a, through a Christian lens. Um, uh, but the one thing that we found, uh, that's hard to find is, is, you know, books that are written for people actually designing technology. A lot of the Christian books about technology, uh, are written by philosophers or theologians and, and they rightly and prophetically talk about the, the challenges and the issues that technology faces. But, you know, some of the real challenges for engineers is to, it's like, okay, um, but how then shall we engineer? Like, what do I do about it as an engineer, right? Sure, technology has is fraught with all of these, with these pitfalls. And so that uh, we found there's very few books that can actually speak to the people who are making technology, right? Uh, there's a lot of books that identify the problems with technology. Um, and so our hope is that this book will be one of many, perhaps that will able to help encourage and equip people actually working in these fields computer scientists designers engineers architects mm-hmm. uh people who are actually forging these tools uh to be yeah to be a faithful presence in in their work but also to, to, to pull in that phrase again to make some imperfect models of the perfect world to come well derek this has been a pleasure and thank you for writing the book and thank you for being with us today yeah thank you for inviting me All right. Thank you.